Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Joseph. And I'm Nick. And this is Fish Jelly. Uh-huh. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Okay. I just woke up moments, mere moments ago. Well, we're all glad for it. We're currently sitting in an apartment in Minneapolis, uh-huh. recording on my cell phone. So, hope this audio quality isn't obnoxious. <laughs> uh, I meant I forgot to mention last week that that two week period prior was our most streamed period. Oh. Yeah. So thank you to the people who listen and the people who continue to give us money every month. Oh, yes. You can do so by going to Spotify and sponsoring us. <laughs> oh, um, we can talk about Minneapolis when we talk about food. So, okay. But I did want to mention on the Bad Game Movies podcast, Bill had talked about, I don't know how he got to the topic of Sherman Hemsley, mm-hmm. but he said that Sherman Hemsley was gay. So I was like, I did not know that. So then I spent quite a bit of time trying to research because I am a huge Sherman Hemsley fan. And when he said it, I thought, oh my gosh, I could totally see him being a gay man. I know him and I think most people know him as playing George Jefferson on The Jeffersons. And I watched that show um, on reruns as a kid. But there was a TV show called Amen that ran in, during the late 80s. And I've mentioned this show many times before. Yes. Um, it ran for five seasons. It starred Sherman Hemsley as Deacon Fry. And I loved that show. It also starred Anna Maria Horsford, mm-hmm. who most people probably know from the movie Friday. She was Ice Cube's mom. Mm-hmm. But I always liked her. And she played Deacon Fry's daughter on Amen. So that's how, when I think about Sherman Hemsley, I think about the show Amen. But I also always thought that my dad, my dad looks like if you mix O.J. Simpson and Sherman Hemsley. Juice Hemsley. Like, yeah, Juice Hemsley. (laughs) That's what my dad looks like. But um, yeah, I was trying to read about him and he had never been married, didn't have children. Apparently he was very private. But at the time of his death, He died in his 70s from lung cancer. Um, His will was contested. um, And that's when some information about him living with like a male friend for a long time sort of came out. Mm -hmm. Because apparently like Sherman's like a strange brother wanted his money. And then this woman who was considered Sherman's like longtime companion had to step in because she was the one he left everything to. Okay. And then I think part of her explanation or whatever came out at the time, she had mentioned that there was this man. 
I don't know how the case ended or who got the money. Um, it appears that his estate was very small, oh. like fifty thousand dollars. Damn. So fi- but you know they probably assumed he had millions because he was <clears throat> famous. But. Yeah. Anyway, I thought that was very interesting, and it makes sense because on the Jeffersons, George was like a smart mouth bigot, which I always thought was very funny back then. And then on Amen, he played. He was a deacon whose wife had died, but he was also a lawyer. And the show revolved around him being this widower, but also that um, Deacon Fry was crooked. Like, he was kind of like a liar and a schemer. And every episode was kind of like him and one of his harebrained schemes. But always kind of like sassy and, and snarky. So, I don't know that he was gay, but if he was, that would make sense. It probably would make me like him more. And remember he had his little walk? Mm-hmm. Do you recall? Yeah. He kind of walked like... A penguin? Yeah, he did. Yeah. Anyway, shout out to Sherman Hemsley. Aw. Looking up from us from hell. No. <laughs> Just kidding. I don't believe in that. So we're in Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. And we've eaten a lot. Actually, not that much compared to previous trips. Well, I guess comparatively. Like but one, co- one, well, compared to my normal life, I feel like a beached whale. One meal a day, <laughs> basically. Well, we tried a few places I had not been to. Well... And then one place I know I really like. But we went to Revival Minneapolis, mm-hmm. which is the one on, because there's more than one, uh, the one on Nicolette. But I had been there years ago when it was a different restaurant. So when we pulled up and I saw that it was in like a new building, I was confused. But apparently they joined forces with another restaurant to give us um, fried chicken and other classic Southern comfort foods served in a relaxed Surrounding, is that what it said? That's a Google description of the restaurant. Oh, okay, I, I, I thought the relaxed surrounding was funny because I often complain about how all these restaurants are so basic and uncomfortable. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> this restaurant felt kind of like any old like diner type restaurant. Like it wasn't particularly nice. Um, no, but the other thing I wanted to mention is you know because I heard two different couples come in while we were eating saying that they came here because they were told that the fried chicken was like famous and they both ordered the fried chicken. I saw them order it and I didn't think that fried chicken was all that. You can't just call things famous. (laughs) Famous where? To who? To what group of people? I've had better fried chicken at Publix because you know, it always depends on whose auntie or grandma is working in the yeah. deli at the grocery store. Because you know they don't follow the standard protocol. Even at the Ralphs on Fountain and La Brea, when we used to live over there, mm-hmm. sometimes I would get like fried chicken breasts, and you could tell which lady was working in the back because they wouldn't follow the recipe and they mm-hmm. add a little extra seasoning <laughs> and let it fry a little bit longer. That's why sometimes because they bake those cookies there too, and sometimes yeah, sometimes they were hitting and sometimes they were a little off. But yeah, I think, I don't know about, I'm not a fried chicken expert because I rarely ever even eat fried chicken. Well, because you won't eat things with bones. I don't like anything, anything with the bones in it, except like steak. I'll mess with a T-bone. But anyway. It has to be one big boat. It's like you won't take more than uh, uh, two exchanges like, with transportation. Yeah, yeah, two? I mean, <laughs> one is bad. But... Yeah, I all I know is I like my fried chicken. I don't like when the skin is not like... Because sometimes it just feels like crunchy skin. Mm-hmm. I want it like coated, like double dipped in whatever shit you're frying it in. 
And then I don't like when the when they bring it to you and the chicken is still super hot and greasy. I need it to be a little more patted down and more like room temperature. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And then I don't need the breading to not taste like anything. Sure. I felt like that chicken at Revival was just like fried chicken with no seasoning. Yeah, there was no seasoning on the skin, really. Uh, but it, but it was it, fine. What, what else did we get? Oh, God. We got rib tips. Those no, were good. Those were good. Because usually rib tips are like the chewy, crunchy part with not very much meat. With some fat. But yeah. this felt like they cut off big chunks of... Because they were cubes. They were cubes. I was surprised at how good and meaty it was. Mm-hmm. So that was good. And then we got Korean barbecue spare ribs. Those were good. We got these like bacon cheddar jalapeno poppers, except there's like brisket in. They were called Texas Twinkies. Those were good. And then the mac and cheese and mashed potatoes were good. Very small portions. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed my food. Yeah, my father was viciously unhappy about the uh, number of items in the appetizers because we were a party of five. And then, of course, we ordered all these appetizers, and there were only three of each. And I do like when the menu says you'll the, get three ribs, three... The menu should say, because, or the, a good waiter would tell you that... You might want to get two of these. The, you, I see your party is bigger than what yeah. this is going to offer you. You I should agree. get two, but whatever. It's then, fine. We then, didn't overeat. No, and yeah. Then we tried a newer restaurant called Earl Giles, which is also in Minneapolis. And it's like a distillery. I actually quite enjoyed... Yeah, it was good. They had... Your sister could not stop talking about the crab dip. Yes. Since, like, we laid eyes on her on whatever day it was. She would not stop talking about the crab dip. That was... I mean, I'm not a crab dip expert because I don't really like crab. But that was amazing. It was very good. And it was served with fry bread, which I had never had. Mm -hmm. Which tastes like like a non-sweet donut. Yeah, you, And they gave quite a bit of it to dip or to use to dip the crab. It was really good. And the pizzas we ordered were, they had some unique flavors that I liked. Yeah. Yeah. I would definitely go back there. My only complaint is it's a distillery and they make their own liquor. Seltzer. And right. Seltzers and like gin. and But their drink menu was kind of limited because I guess they're still working on... They're too, they only passed a year, being open a year, so some of their liquor's not ready to serve. It's not aged properly, yeah. but it, the, the drink menu felt limited to me, and I ended up ordering two different cocktails, which were not things I would normally drink. Mm-hmm. They were tasty, but yeah. Then we went to a restaurant I had never been called Churchill Street uh, Restaurant, Yeah, which is also in Minneapolis. Which inside looks like the church in Midsummer. Did it? It looked communal in there. It reminded me of like a Mendocino Farms or a Tokaya. Like it had that sort of like modern country home. Sure, but to but it. without kind of the frills that either of those places seem to have. Yeah, like it felt Lutheran. Yes, yeah. It, well, and actually, the, if if you Google the restaurant, the exterior kind of looks like it could be a church, like a like a more modern church or some kind of court related activity might happen in this building. The last restaurant I wanted to mention was Hell's Kitchen, which mm-hmm. I used to frequent quite a bit when I lived in Minneapolis. I love that restaurant, and it makes me think how much I loved living and working in the Skyway. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of depressing when I arrived on Thursday, 
and I walked through the Skyway just for fun. Like I didn't come straight to you. I, I sort of stopped and got um, tea and then I walked around. Like how much it's changed. And I'm sure the pandemic had a big effect on that. But like the old Macy's slash Dalton's in downtown Minneapolis is no longer there. So they've reworked the space and all the restaurants that I used to go to, they're all gone. You know, the old off sacks that I used to go to is now like, I think a Walgreens and it's just very different. Gavaday Commons is empty. Well, I heard a lot of these stores ever since the George Floyd's murder, there's been kind of a lot of uh, robbery still. I, I think it's transformed the downtown and uptown areas from what I hear from, from people here. Yeah, we didn't even go uptown, but I understand that it's changed a lot. That makes me sad. Yeah. That being said, I would still live in Minneapolis. I really like it here. Um, Didn't it used to be known as Murderapolis in the 80s? Yeah, but you know, having lived here for a long time and then witnessing the aftermath of George Floyd, I think there's a lot of like white fragility around these oh, parts. Because yes. what people refer to as being like ghetto or urban or scary is like, mm. I don't know, I was born and raised in LA, so none of this seems that scary to me. <laughs> well, because I, I stay in the same, it's, it's advertised as a pied a terre, but uh, I stay in the same place and never. What's a pied a terre? Like a walk up, it's French. Oh. Uh, I mean, I guess it kind of is. It's cute. It's very cute, but people are like, oh, this area is it's not safe. I'm like, oh, okay. Um, <laughs> I like, feel fine. Like, I think this would be a cute, like, second home mm -hmm. to buy a, a, a little condo like this. I don't know that I would want it on this street. We might have to move, like, two streets down. Sure, but... But that's mainly because of the parking situation. Like, well, I probably wouldn't have a car here. But I, de I don't feel unsafe walking around here. No, I wouldn't feel unsafe. I mean, I'd be more alert at night. Like, I wouldn't walk at as, night with my headphones on. As but, you should be anyway. Yeah, but yeah, I don't think this is... it. To me, it's cute. But anyway, I do I really like Minneapolis. Moving on to films covered, we, or films released we didn't cover, Dream Scenario. Oh, yeah, because uh, there was too much going on. But the new Nicolas Cage headlined film by Christopher Borgley, whose last film we did review, Sick of Myself. Oh. With that woman that was uh, harming herself to get attention. She was changing her face. Oh. Oh, that does sound familiar. Yeah, you liked it. Yeah. Uh, but Sick of Myself is supposedly really good. Uh, I think it's A24. Maybe I'll catch up with that next week. Next, Four Daughters. Uh, I reviewed this for Ion Cinema. It premiered in competition at Cannes by Kauther Benhania, a Tunisian director. Uh, her last film, which I really didn't like, got an Oscar nomination for Best uh, International Feature. I don't know how. The Man Without Skin or something. Uh, this one was more interesting, but... Uh, I didn't love it, but it's worth a watch. It's about a mother who has four daughters, as the title suggests, and her two eldest ones uh, became radicalized and went, uh, I think, if one might be dead and one is in prison with a child. Uh, and then it, the two younger daughters play themselves, and then they go through a series of reenactments about how the older daughters were radicalized in the culture they lived within. Uh, it's, it seems like it's real traumatic for this mom and two younger sisters, in my opinion, but uh, it's interesting. Next, The Killer. The Killer. Who the, we've received, or which we've received several messages asking if we'll review it. Yeah. Um, the answer is no, because I, I didn't watch it and I don't have time now. 
Okay, uh, well, Michael Fassbender, Tilda Swinton, the new David Fincher, which premiered in Venice. I did review it uh, for Ion Cinema. I might watch it later, maybe, I doubt, but... Uh, Orlando, my political biography. Uh, I missed this at a bunch of film festivals, but I finally saw it right before we left. Paul B. Precado uh, directed this, and it's uh, kind of a a retelling of their own experiences, plus a number of trans people, uh, and also through the prism of Virginia Woolf's 1928 novel Orlando, which I just reread because I it's been years and years and years, and I uh, I'm a fan of the Sally Potter film, but. Uh, Positioning this as the first trans text uh, because it's about a, an aristocrat set over 300 years who wakes up suddenly one day and uh, she's a young man and it's now a young woman. Oh. Until the Swinton plays her in the Sally Potter film. But a uh, lot, I mean, you know, Virginia Woolf's excellent and no one really writes like that uh, that I seem to read anymore. But uh, yeah, it, it's it's interesting uh, it, as a cis person who had read this years ago, not thinking in those terms at all, uh, and, and how uh, it relates to the people in this documentary set of experiences, I thought was pretty fascinating and pretty compelling. Lastly, Walden. Oh God, this looks terrible, but poor Emile Hirsch, never really quite recovered uh, from his scandal sexual assault scandal, but uh, Mick Davis directed this and Emile Hirsch headlines. It looks like some kind of B horror thriller, but based on the poster, but I, I doubt I will be seeing it. Moving on to movies we watch for fun. Um, on the plane ride over, I watched 17 again. That movie was terrible. In honor of Matthew Perry? Not in honor of him. I think it was more like because I used to really like Zac Efron for some reason. And I thought, let me see if this holds up because I recall wanting to watch 17 again. Yeah, it's terrible. First of all, Zac Efron is like a foot, like a basketball star. He looks so puny because they also have Zac Efron playing Matthew Perry in the 80s, mm -hmm. like as his younger self. And he looks crazy. He has his crazy wig on and he's so petite and he's supposed to be like the next Michael Jordan. I don't. <laughs> and then, of course, he gives up his basketball aspirations because he got his girlfriend pregnant. Um, and then his best friend, who ended up becoming like a rich tech magnate, is played by the guy from mm, Reno 911. Uh, Le Thomas Lennon? Yes. Okay. Oh, it's so obnoxious. <laughs> I remember uh, renting, I rented that on DVD from Hollywood Video and because we, you were living somewhere else at the time and I remember flying to you because you liked Zac Efron and we watched that. What, what, you what do you remember about this movie? I remember feeling crazy that Zac Efron was supposed to be a young Matthew Perry. It's like, oh, you turned into that. <laughs> <laughs> well, th yeah, that too. Like, God, you fell off. How how did that happen? Although, I don't know, seeing Zac Efron now, which he's getting headlines again because he did another interview. Um, or he's been doing press because of that new movie about the wrestling brothers. Uh, I'm really excited for the Iron Claw. Yeah, But of course, he still looks, I mean, his, his, his face looks altered. Uh -huh. But um, anyway, you watched Butcher's Crossing. Yeah, since I missed Dream Scenario, I had this link for Butcher's Crossing, which we didn't review, starring Nicolas Cage, uh, based on a, a very well-received uh, novel uh, about 
buffalo skin hunters. <laughs> and, and, and I forget the kid's name uh, who's the, who headlined the, the Pale Blue Eye with Christian Bale, that Edgar Allan Poe movie from last oh. year. Uh, but, but Nick, it's directed by Gabe Polsky, who I think is an interesting enough director. And it was fine. And in fact, surprisingly, Mr. Cage dialed it back a lot more than I expected. Mm. We watched The Little Princess, which I don't know how we came upon that. I think I said I'd never seen a Shirley Temple movie. Mm-hmm. And you were like, oh, I don't really care for her. But my favorite Shirley Temple movie is... The Little Princess, and then you said your grandma, after she realized that you liked that movie, bought you other Shirley Temple movies. I'm like, I don't need to see Heidi or whatever. I like, ugh. I only liked it because she. I thought she was egregiously annoying and then gets uh, kind of abused and mistreated. <laughs> I actually liked The Little Princess. It's about, it's set in the 1930s? 1899. Oh, 1899. <laughs> England is at war, the Boer War. Anyway, Shirley Temple's dad is like a sergeant or a colonel. Captain Crew. Captain. He's a captain. But in the military, but he's also super rich. Uh-huh. But he's one of those super rich people who wants to, I guess, serve the country. I don't know why. But he, um, he gets sent off to war or chooses to go. And he puts his daughter up in this fancy boarding school. Mm-hmm. It kind of felt like Annie to me. Yeah. Because the the head mistress of the school is this like mean old lady, but she's nice to Shirley Temple because she knows her dad is rich, and it and then sort of the 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 first big climax is that for Shirley Temple's birthday, her dad sends a letter to the school saying, "I want you to throw her the most extravagant birthday mm-hmm. because I'm not going to be there. Money is no object. Spare no expense." And the reason I like the movie, we can talk about Shirley Temple as an actor, but her character is this really sweet girl mm-hmm. who's just very generous and nice. So for her birthday, she doesn't want gifts. She wants to buy everyone else gifts. So she gets everyone in this school a gift. Staff. Staff, students, everyone. And then as everyone's celebrating and eating cake and opening their presents the headmistress gets notification that Shirley Temple's dad died in the war. And what's also messed up is the war ended the week before or something. And when I tell y'all, that lady snatched them gifts back so fast. (laughs) And then she literally rips the clothes off of Shirley Temple, tells her to brush down her curls. Like, bitch, we're selling everything you own to pay your debt because your dad didn't pay for this party because now he's dead. And then we find out that and he hasn't, he's not able to pay tuition, but we're also told that the form, like the, the, the enemy has seized his assets, seized his assets. So it's not like she's going to inherit any of her dad's money. So the entire film after that point is Shirley Temple talking about, I know my dad's not dead. Mm-hmm. I can feel it. So she keeps going to like the veterans hospital looking for her dad. But the wounded that come in. And the gag is he was only wounded. And he is at the hospital, but he's, like, shell-shocked. So all he can say is his daughter's name, Sarah. But they're like, who the hell are you talking about? And who are you? But the Queen of England... So everything culminates in uh, Shirley about to be carted off and punished, and she runs away. Because it's also important to note that she befriends this uh, Indian 
manservants across the because she's played a, by uh, Cesar Romero played by in, Cesar Romero in brownface. But he's fr- apparently that was he was supposed to have a monkey, but the monkey didn't like Shirley Temple, so he gets a he gets a macaw instead. Uh, but he sees that she's living in squalor in the attic with her and this other little ragamuffin. Is her name Becky? And like she, a servant girl, a servant girl who they make seem so simple. Oh my god! Like she's just like this illiterate, like street urchin chimney sweep girl. Yeah. She even makes Shirley Temple a gift, and the spelling—I forget what it is. It's a pillow. Oh, but she spells out like three words, and it's so. <laughs> Whoever wrote this knows they're shady for making that girl seem so like raggedy. Frances Hodgson Burnett. But uh, the girl's really sweet, and Shirley Temple really likes her. But they—he the. Uh, Cesar Romero outfits her, gives her all this lavish gifts because he creepily... He's watching her. Watches her. He's watching this young girl while she sleeps (laughs) in the attic. But he, (laughs) and the rich employer he works for, give her all these riches and deck out... Which I didn't understand. I don't... Why would you do that? Because when the rich employer first sees Shirley Temple through the window and she says hi, he looks at her like, ugh. I know. And he's really mean to his servant. So it was shocking to me that he would then say, yeah, like, shower this little girl with Riches. Riches. But they do. And then the uh, headmistress of the school thinks she's stolen them all and locks them up and threatens to call the police. Just at that, Shirley's able to escape, runs to the hospital, and and by accident, complete accident, she bumps into her father who's... Oh, no, she bumps into the Queen of England is where you stop me. And then the Queen is like, well, what's wrong, little girl? She's like, I need to try to find my dad. And the Queen tells her servants, like, make sure this little girl... Checks the entire hospital. And then when she finds her dad and the dad... The dad is made to seem like he is a vegetable. Yes. And then when Shirley Temple starts screaming like, Dad, it's me, it's me. He miraculously wakes up from this like... Stupor. Stupor. That he's in. That was ridiculous. And then the queen comes through the hallway in her wheelchair. And nods at Shirley Temple. But they make that dad stand up. He does stand up. Like, you were an invalid, and now you're just like... <laughs> you got- like, you just finished a marathon. It's laughable. And then the film just abruptly ends. Yeah. I enjoyed this movie. I would watch it again. There's a remake Alfonso Cuarón did in the 90s. So, yeah. If you have access to The Little Princess... And it's like... I would call it like a Christmassy movie. Yeah, it's Like, it's a good holiday. holiday movie. Yeah. But Shirley Temple's creepy. <laughs> yes. She's like 11 in this movie. Mm-hmm. Ugh. I think she's so creepy because she looks like a... Like... like if you took a 40-year-old woman and shrunk her down, <laughs> and then she acts like a 60-year-old woman. Uh-huh. And then we get all these scenes of her running through the city streets with, They're, like... With her head covered. Her hair covered with a scarf, and the way she's holding it, she looks like a middle-aged woman. A and refugee. her acting is so, like... Ugh. It made my skin crawl, but then... It's saccharine, yeah. But because her character was so sweet, that's why I liked the movie. But Shirley Temple as an actor I thought was so creepy. Well, and she's old enough by then where she doesn't have the uh, the chip, those prominent chipmunk cheeks. I hated how she used to speak and shake her curls with the, with the cheeks. Oh, it drives me crazy. She does have big... I don't know if she was wearing a flipper or those were her like adult teeth coming in. Those are probably a flipper. But her chompers were big. <laughs> and it was like, oh my God, this looks like a whole... You know what it reminded me of? Um, that French actress in the movie Aline Lemercier. Oh, Valerie, Valerie Lemercier. Valerie Lemercier in the movie Aline, where she plays like the nine-year-old version of herself. Yeah. 
like Marlon Wayans in that one movie. Sex Tuplets. That's what Shirley Temple feels like to me in this movie. Oh, uh, uh, notably, it was directed by Walter Lang, who's probably best known for The King and I with Yul Brenner and Deborah Carr. Moving on, we watched some crazy, some more crazy shit. Roadhouse, starring Kurt or Patrick Swayze. I'm sorry, <laughs> Kurt Russell and Patrick Swayze are very similar to me. Uh, sure. Roadhouse with Patrick Swayze. I had never seen it. You hadn't. I put it on. It's directed by Rowdy Harrington. I thoroughly enjoyed this movie, but it's terrible. Oh, it's like the, <laughs> the barbacks version of Cocktail. It is terrible. Patrick Swayze, he seems like he... he he's like a bouncer. I'm sorry, the bouncer's version of Cocktail is what I'm He's a bouncer, and he gets... Picked to come work at some rural bar and whip it into shape. And he is like, getting paid $5,000 a night plus medical expenses. It's like Tabitha's Salon Takeover. Oh, it's crazy. It, it really is like Tabitha's Salon Takeover. And he shows up and tries to whip this bar into shape. But we find out that there's this veteran who is basically like taking over the city, buying up everything. Ben Gazzara. Yeah. But he's also like a mob boss. Yeah. It's so stupid. And then there's a doctor played by Kelly Lynch. Oh my God. Who falls in love with Patrick Swayze's character. It, I would highly recommend watching this movie. And then Sam <laughs> Elliott. Oh, Sam Elliott's so handsome. Mm -hmm. So is Patrick Swayze. His hair are. was like, ugh. Well, Sam's got the better hair. Sam but... has the better everything. Um, but yeah, Patrick Swayze, he's, I, I like him on screen. But when he is giving these uh, staff lectures, I was getting Miss Vita Boheme sometimes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. You watched Hollow Man? Yeah. Um, I hadn't seen this since it came out. The Verhoeven version of Invisible Man, basically, with uh, very nasty Kevin Bacon and Elizabeth Shue and Josh Brolin, who I thought looked pretty damn good in that. I, I don't know how I missed that back in the year 2000. But... Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think it's a lot of fun. I mean, there it it's Verhoeven doing Invisible Man, so it, it takes it to the logical steps. And there's, uh, and I mean, I think the rape of Rona Mitra is still pretty gross, uh, but effective. Did you like this movie? I did. I mean, some of the special effects are arguably. I watched the scene because you were watching it while I was in bed, but I poked my head out when he first becomes invisible, and mm -hmm. I thought it looked good. It looks, it, yeah, it, I, I think it's interesting. I like Elizabeth Shue in it. Um, I think you were critical of something about her, but uh, in your snippets that you saw, but I, I enjoy it. I miss Verhoeven in Hollywood. You watched I Love a Man in Uniform? It, uh, I think here it was finally released as a man in uniform, but originally oh. it's, it is I Love a Man in Uniform. Uh, it's a Canadian film from 1993 directed by David Wellington. I know it premiered a Cannes, and its lead actor, Tom McCamus, won a genie. I think that that's the Canadian version of the Oscars, mm. uh, and I think it swept the genies that year. Uh, it also has that young kid from a movie we did a podcast on, Love and Human Remains. Remember the young kid that's the waiter that falls in love with... The, the one who could be non-binary? Yes, and had the they show his butt. Yes. Uh, he has a short role in this, and I think it's about, oh. about the same year. Um but it's it's about an actor. He, he's a banker who's a wannabe actor that lands a role in a television series playing a kind of a rough-and-tumble cop. And he starts becoming obsessed with the thought of being an actual police officer and goes around the city dressed up like one in his uh, filming uniform and 
goes crazy. <laughs> Next, you watched Hard Target. Yeah, I think I see John Woo's Silent Night tomorrow. Tomorrow's Monday. Oh. Um, and uh, his first... I'm not seeing it. I don't believe so, oh, okay. but you'll have to double check if you want to. Uh, he he had his own John Woo obviously had a, a a pretty decent Hollywood period as well, especially in the '90s. And he did this Jean Claude Van Damme star, which is not good. It's about veterans being hunted by rich assholes in New Orleans on the streets of New Orleans. Oh, homeless I, veterans. I saw you um, watching that. I I seem to recall did Jean Claude have a coke problem because he looks like. He was on some things, but that hair, that long hair that's all crispy and fried in the back that you can see through and all those actions, it's bad. Yancey Butler, I don't find the most interesting, but Casey Lemons uh, has a supporting role in it. Uh, It's funny, I think this was a 93, a film in 93, and it's similar to an Ernest Dickerson film, Surviving the Game, with Ice-T. Do you remember that film? And Booker Hauer, where I think Ice-T is also, had been, is a veteran, so, you know, we have to explain why people have the skills to fight back these hunters. And he is hired to, I think, escort a group of all these, I think they're almost, I think they're all white men, these these hunters up to some cabin. And, he, and they ended up, when they get there and they're all isolated, hunting him and he has to survive. Oh. Next, Pain Hustlers. The David Yates Netflix film with Emily Blunt and uh, Chris Chris. Evans. Oh, you watched that? I watched that while you were flying in here. And I like Emily Blunt. It's a little long. Uh, It's very what you would expect it to be based on the story. Uh, And and it has some things that are interesting. I I don't know. It it was very much as I expected. I don't really like Chris Evans. I'd rather watch a wax figure. Uh, And Andy Garcia has an interesting little role and Catherine O'Hara is her mother. I just, I do find it hard to believe a woman that looks as well-kept as Emily Blunt uh, is working as a stripper living out of hotel rooms, motel rooms, but that's just me. You watch Stand By Me? Yeah, you were here for that. I haven't watched this in years and years and years and we had some time and the place we're staying, we only had Netflix, access to Netflix, so. Uh, it, yeah, it's a charming movie. It's sad. Oh, I don't know how it ends. So I, I, I didn't, it didn't really catch my attention. So, well, I remember reading the novella in different seasons, but, uh, it's bookended by Richard Reifus, who's the Will Wheaton character as an adult and he's reminiscing. Oh, so the fi- and he's jarred into reminiscing because I believe the Corey Feldman character had been just knifed in a bar fight. Oh. And he goes down memory lane. I didn't even know this was a Stephen King adaptation. Mm-hmm. Okay, you put on a movie uh, the other day that was so crazy, Identikit. Also known as The Driver's Seat, based on the novel by Muriel Spark. It's about... I don't. I still don't know what I think... I've, it stars Elizabeth Taylor. One of her craziest roles. It's insane. Yeah. She plays a woman who... I don't know how to explain this movie. She announces, like, I'm taking a vacation. She's in Copenhagen. Mm-hmm. And then she goes to France? She goes to Rome. Rome, I'm sorry. Yeah, she she's at work, and she's like, yeah, I'm going on vacation. She goes to Rome, and basically, she's trying to find a man to kill her. But she finds him immediately on the plane when she sits down. And then he kills her. Mm-hmm. But the movie's told, like, like, we're... 
Oh my, I'm, I'm so confused, but it, it, it's technically a flashback. It seems like it's a flashback where we have these like law enforcement people trying to find her and like everyone knows that we see a lot of people being asked about her and we get the sense that maybe she's, I thought initially that maybe she was like a terrorist mm-hmm. or at the very minimum, like a missing person who's wanted for bad things. Mm-hmm. But then it turns out that she's missing and also murdered. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to investigate that instead. But it's crazy. <laughs> I think it's, well, her, it's, it's um, frustrating as well. And I read the book quite recently. I haven't seen this for years and years and years, but it was recently uh, restored and re-released by, uh, in the House of Psychotic Women collection. Yeah. I, I think it's worth a watch just because it's so interesting watching Elizabeth Taylor seem cracked. I love her period after her second Oscar win because she was taking on a lot of weird daring roles because I love Secret Ceremony. Uh, there's some trash in there too, but this is a, a, a shining jewel. And of course, uh, Muriel Spark is best known as the author of The Prime of Miss Jean Brody. The interesting thing about that is the year Maggie Smith won her Oscar for that film adaptation, that was the year the Academy was punishing Liz, uh, why she didn't win for Suddenly Last Summer, supposedly. Oh. Um, but yeah, this is, and I read, the, as I said, the book, the, this, this version directed by Giuseppe Petroni Griffey, who directed Charlotte Rampling in Tis Pity She's a Whore, uh, stays pretty clear, uh, pretty close to the book. And I like the finality of, I like how it ends on that note where the man who, and it's so creepy because we think that she's sexually attracted to the man. She unnerves this younger man on a plane and he runs away from her uh, on the plane. And because they, she sees something in his eyes, and it's that she believes he could kill her. <laughs> My, I after I finished it, because it, it was hard to take this film seriously. It's also dubbed in English, like the version we watched is dubbed in English, so it all feels kind of over the top. But I thought a good story would be about a person wanting to die mm-hmm. and trying to find someone to kill them, but it's set up like we see them going on dates. And we, you know, I mean, it would have to be one of those where, like, it's not spoiled, where you don't know what she's trying to do. But we see that she's trying to, like, find someone who she thinks would be capable. Mm-hmm. And then, like you just mentioned, when she does meet the person and we see that spark in them, it, that, like, that would be very creepy that we almost don't even need to see the actual killing. Mm-hmm. Um, this one just felt like a mess, though. It, it <laughs> Sure, it does a little bit, but her performance is pretty damn good. And I like... That a lot of the, uh, a lot of the kind of moments, like when she happens to comment about what she's looking for, it's she she's trying to fill an absence or something, but it's she just needs a presence. There's some kind of interesting exchange there, and then I also there these she basically is sexually assaulted too by these other men in her journeys throughout Rome, um, including a taxi driver who's wearing a onesie that, and nothing underneath it, which is really odd. But she says something to the other man she meets on the plane that's like, oh, I just can't wait to get back to my, my loneliness. I can't wait to get home to where my loneliness awaits for me. Mm. You could read a lot into it. I, I don't think this movie's well done enough to <laughs> examine that way. I know it's concluded in... Because the version we watched... The person who who wrote the book about the psychotic women, Kayla Yanis, yeah. she talks about it, but she wasn't very interesting, so we cut that off. But oh, anyway, you watch Copland? I haven't watched this since 1997 either, 
And you know what? I, I think I might put it out there. This might this is definitely in Sylvester Stallone's top three film performances mm. as this sheriff who's definitely. Well, you haven't seen Rocky. I haven't seen Rocky. That's why, uh, and I, I think First Blood is pretty damn good. I actually. agree. And I'm not even a big. If uh, people follow me at all, <laughs> know that I'm not really a big Sylvester Stallone fan. But he's really good in this, and it's James Mangold's second feature. After this, he would do Girl Interrupted, and now he's trapped in the. Well, he did the last two Wolverine movies. Uh, uh, anyway, early in his career, I thought he was going to be a, a modern-day Mankiewicz with how he would genre hop. But uh, anyway, Copland's pretty damn good. It's fantastic cast. I haven't seen this since 97. Um, and I forgot about some of the wonderful ladies in limited supporting roles. I didn't forget about Janine Garofalo as one of Sly's deputies. But I, I forgot all about Kathy Moriarty and Annabella Sciorra, the woman he, he had lost his shit over. Because the story is, as a youth, he saved this girl who went, drew, drove off a bridge, a, be, a beauty queen, Annabella Sciorra. And then uh, she ended up marrying Peter Berg, a cop who would abuse her. Okay, we watched a film that I selected just like we were waiting for. We were trying to figure out dinner. Yeah. And it was like, oh, we're going to order from two places. So someone needs to go get food and then another person needs to go. Or no, we were we ordered it for delivery and then the other one wasn't available for delivery. Anyway, it was a cluster. So I'm like, let me just put on a movie while y'all figure out dinner. And I put on For My Daughter's Honor. Which is a 1996 made-for-TV movie. It aired on CBS on your birthday in 1996. Little did I know. But um, it stars Gary Cole and Nicole Tom. Nicole Tom I know from The Nanny. And the Beethoven movies. I don't know who Gary Cole is. Oh, we he was big in our house and my mom liked him. I think he's very handsome. Yeah, he's tall. He was in a, a series that was very short-lived we liked called American Gothic. Uh, For My Daughter's Honor was also released as Indecent Seduction. <laughs> Gary Cole plays a biology a biology teacher slash like phys ed teacher who <laughs> he seduces this 13, 14-year-old girl, Nicole Tom. Mm -hmm. And it is out of control. He is so overt about it. In front of everyone. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows. Everyone knows. The entire little town knows. Until the end. Well, so then, I mean, it, it just like this relationship building up. It's important to know that the young girl, she starts to get tired of him. Well, he's very needy. Because he's very needy. It seems like the sex wasn't great because he deflowers her. Mm -hmm. And then she's embarrassed that everyone knows. So she's trying to tell him, I don't want to be with you. And he won't listen to her. So she finally tells her parents, which leads to Gary Cole being arrested and getting like five months in jail. But everyone in the town is against her now because they feel like, well, I think the biggest issue is that Gary Cole's character was leading the high school football team to the championship. And now that he's incarcerated, the team doesn't make it. High school So everyone hates her. Football. Everyone mm -hmm. hates her because she made the team lose. But then all the people think she's like a slut and that she let him on. I think that's the most interesting part of the story that obviously this 1996 made-for-TV film wasn't interested in getting into. But sort of how she... Because one lawyer towards the end does say like, well, she knowingly 
Mm-hmm. Like, she's not out of the house to go be with him. It's mm-hmm. not like he sexually assaulted her. Mm-hmm. She wanted that. But then, of course, she's a child. So it's like, well, how can we say what the child knew she wanted? I kind of wish the movie would have been more about that. Sure. And then it kind of abruptly ends because her mother, played by... Mary Kay Place. She basically tells her, like, you don't have to continue fighting this fight. Mm-hmm. Like, we can stop. And then the film just ends. Well, the, the daughter says, well, what if I can stop it from happening to somebody else? And then we see that, like, a very generic text pops up on the screen saying that laws were enacted to basically say it's illegal for teachers to have... Well, children have the right not to be, was it, sexually assaulted or harassed by their teachers. It doesn't reference any specific law, and the way it's worded sounds so, like... We've we've announced that murder's bad or okay. it's so effed up though. It's like the laws had to change because somebody had to go there, somebody had to to break some pretty clear boundaries. I was so uncomfortable it is watching uncomfortable. this man. Well albeit a very handsome man, like just being so He's so over the top. He's so forward. <laughs> um and her little friends are played by Sarah Rue and Allison Hannigan, who also turn on her. Okay. The director uh, did a bunch of TV stuff, but he did something right before this called New Eden with Stephen Baldwin and Lisa Bonet. Oh, I'd watch that. <laughs> then the final movie we watched for fun uh, is a 2006 Australian film called Irresistible. Your sister had told you about this a while back. Yeah. And mm-hmm. was like, you have to watch this. This should have been a secret movie because this movie was. <clears throat> So damn crazy. Well, first of all, it's directed by uh, an Australian woman named Ann Turner. And speaking of the Kayla Yanis woman, there was a, a a pretty good box set put out two years ago now, folk horror. And this woman's, Ann Turner's first film, 1989, Celia, is a very well-revered piece of folk horror, cult, cult horror cinema, uh, which I found interesting. And I've seen that film. Well, this 2006 film, Irresistible, stars... Susan Sarandon and Sam Neill, who are both like 60 years old. They're damn near 60, yep. And they look their age. Yep. And they have two young daughters, a seven-year-old and a 10-year-old. And the the very first scene is Susan Sarandon like trying to run her kids to school and then thinks that she forgot. The iron. Like, like the iron is on, so she runs back to the house. <laughs> um, but even that first scene, watching Susan Sarandon with these two girls is like, she looks like their grandmother. Yes. But the basic story is that Sam Neill has a new, like, it's like he. An IT assistant. It, Emily Blunt mm-hmm. works at the same company Sam Neill works for. Who looks great. And they are having an affair. Well, not even at this point. But not even. It, oh, this movie is so poorly written. And I. Susan Sarandon said that she spent six months writing this script with. The director. The director, yeah. Six months. Was it six weeks or six months? I don't remember. I thought it was six months. Oh. But even six weeks seems unbelievable. Yeah. If you told me they wrote the script in six hours, I would say that they goofed off for four of those hours. Because this movie makes no sense. Nothing fits. I I tried briefly to see if this had been originally supposed to be a different title. I don't get what's irresistible. Like who or what in it is irresistible. Okay, so we find out that at first, you think there's a supernatural component because Susan Sarandon keeps seeing things, mm-hmm. and she's like, having fantasy dreams. Fantasy dreams about an and there, there's a big symbol of an owl, mm-hmm. and then, then it's like, oh, Emily Blunt's trying to take her life because she's convinced Emily Blunt. Like Emily Blunt ends up 
at two different events wearing the same dress as there's Susan some, Sarandon. There's lots of dress things going on, yeah. So then it's like, oh, maybe she's trying to steal her life. Mm-hmm. Her, Even, like like uh, the girl in Inconceivable. But then that doesn't make sense because Emily Blunt has a husband and they have a nicer life than Susan Sarandon and Sam Neill. They have, like, they live in a beautiful modern mansion. <laughs> they also have a child, so she's not childless. She has plenty of money. So everything about Emily Blunt's life is better than Susan Sarandon's. It would seem. It would seem. So then it's like, well, she doesn't want her life. And then you realize in the third act, oh, Emily Blunt is Susan Sarandon's daughter, who Susan Sarandon had at the age of 18 and gave up for adoption. That we find out in a conversation very late in the game. And it makes no sense. Nothing is tied together why... Because then the final scene of the film is that we realize that Emily Blunt as a young girl lives in an orphanage because she was a, a foster, you know, given up for adoption. And there was another girl named Katie who ended up becoming her best friend. Mm-hmm. And Katie was killed as like a, because she was a humanitarian in Kosovo. In Kosovo. Uh-huh. They and keep then, talking about Kosovo. And it's so confusing because the film makes it seem like the girl, the humanitarian in Kosovo, who was the young girl Emily Blunt grew up with in the orphanage, that girl is Susan Sarandon's daughter? It seems so. So then Emily Blunt is like trying to get, like, avenge her friend. Her friend by ruining the life of her mother who gave her up for adoption. This movie makes no sense. It was pretty bad. There were so many moments where I was confused and giggling, like, this is horrible. I would highly recommend the 2006 film Irresistible, <laughs> but you have to watch it with friends. Yeah. And alcohol. It and made, marijuana. Yeah. I don't know. <clears throat> it made me. The, her previous film was over a decade before this. Ann Turner's sounds fascinating with Sandra Bernhard called uh, Dallas Doll. Oh, and, oh, that's right, which does look interesting. Important to know that the movie is set in Australia. Yes. And Susan's. Children have Australian accents, although Sam Neill and her don't. But then we're told that Sam Neill is like from Australia. Yeah. Like he's Australian, even though he doesn't sound Australian. And then we're told that Susan Sarandon has lived in Australia since she was 17. But her mother's from New York. And that her dad is Australian. But she doesn't even sound like she has spent two weeks in Australia. Right. (laughs) Y'all wanted to criticize Sigourney's uh, accents and... I don't even... Did I rate this on Letterboxd? I don't even know what I would give this movie. I I give it a one. I would say it's a one out of five, but it's amusing. It's amusing, sure. Okay, unfortunately, there are entries in the obituary section, although these are people who I don't know. Someone named Evan Ellingson, who was on a show called My Sister's Keeper. He died at the age of 35. Um, Okay. And apparently, he was perhaps like, like an unhoused, like life did not go well for him. Oh. Yeah, like he was in rehab and stuff. So I don't know how he died, but obviously, you know, that's sad to die so young and have troubles. And then another person named Johnny Rufo, he's on a show called Home and Away, which I thought, oh, I thought that was a movie. Isn't there a movie called Home and Away? He's not from that movie. He's from an Australian TV series called Home and Away. Do you mean Flyway Home? No. It, well, maybe that's the movie I was thinking, but he's he was on an Australian show called Home and Away. So he's not someone I know, but he also died at 35 from brain cancer. Ooh. Yeah. 
we need to take a break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The secret film this week was my choice, and I chose the 1996 American action thriller film, Executive Decision, starring our friend Kurt Russell. Uh-huh. We both met him before. We have. You met him at his house in Santa Barbara? No, no. Uh, that was... Where, where did they have the peas? The peas? Where were that, that, that area, that, that wine, part of the wine country that has the peas? Oh, I don't know anything about that. But I met him at his home in Palm Springs for his, what used to be annual party for his wine brand. They still have it. No, they still have the parties. During the pandemic, obviously, it didn't happen. But anyway, I chose this one because I'd never seen it. And also, Kurt Russell is your mom's favorite actor. Yes. And she was with us. Mm -hmm. Um, This movie, the story is uh, when terrorists seize control of an airliner, an intelligence analyst accompanies a commando unit for a mid-air boarding operation. So there is this commercial flight that is being taken over um, by terrorists. Led by David Suchet. Yeah, it was in Athens and now it's headed to Washington, D.C. And these terrorists... um, are they have some sort of like nerve agent called DC DZ5 DZ5 and it's connected to a bomb and their intention is to um, land this plane in DC and detonate the bomb which we're told would kill half the eastern seaboard but they're doing this because they want to release their leader mm-hmm. so they're like trying to negotiate the release of some lead terrorist. But this commando unit, which is led by Steven Seagal, their plan is to take this like secret aircraft that can connect to another plane so they can board the commercial plane and take down the terrorists. And Kurt Russell plays, I'm not quite sure what his qualifications were or what he did. We know he's a PhD. They uh-huh. tell us that. He's an, he's an intelligence expert. Yeah, an intelligence <laughs> consultant. And so they want him to join the boarding mission because he knows what these terrorists look like. I was very confused. Yeah, because we don't know David Suchet's identity is so... Because he also seems like he's a scientist, so I'm not quite sure like what his PhD is in. But, but anyway, they get up to the plane, they do board it, but then there's an incident where the the special jet fighter plane... There's like an accident where it has to disconnect. Yes. So now this commando group, including Kurt Russell, are stuck on this commercial flight with these terrorists. And if they don't figure out a plan, they're all going to die. Of course they do. They deactivate the bomb. They kill the terrorists. But the main terrorist, when he knows the jig is up (laughs) and that his plan's been foiled, he shoots and kills the pilots so that the plane will crash. But thankfully, the opening scene of this film is Kurt Russell taking like flying lessons. So we see that he knows 
almost knows how to fly like a little single propeller plane on his own. Mm -hmm. So the final scene of the film is that Kurt Russell now has to land this commercial jetliner in D.C. And he does. It's a little rough, but he does. The end. Kurt is an FAA licensed pilot. Kurt is a pilot, yeah. Uh, what, what would you give this movie? I think it's fun. It's it's silly and stupid in some moments, but uh, I, lo- I think Hallie looks great. She doesn't get a whole lot to do, but she looks fantastic. Uh, and I love that the death of Steven Seagal. So three for me. I think I would give it two and a half out of five. I did enjoy it, but it feels very much like those 90s action blockbusters that the story, the acting, the casting doesn't necessarily make sense. Sure. But it, but it's a fun ride. Are you talking about Marla Maples Trump? Ugh, Marla Maples Trump didn't have anything to do. Steven Seagal is so annoying on screen to me. B.D. Wong. B.D. Wong. Uh, uh, Joe, Joe Morton. Jo, uh, John Leguizamo. And then there's the... It's like the four of them and we're, we were... Through the whole movie, we were like, who's this other white guy that no- nobody recognized that's kind of at Kurt's side through a lot of it? That's Whip Hubley, who is Season Hubley's brother. In other words, Kurt's ex-brother-in-law. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, they have quite a few scenes together. Yeah. Um, yeah, I thought some of the casting just made... It made a, this could have been a very serious, like, suspense action thriller. But because of the casting, I was kind of rolling my eyes a lot and... A little distracted. It's, uh, you know, compared to something like True Lies from the period, which is also dealing with, you know, stereotyped uh, terrorist cliches, but uh, just the kind of energy and grit and comedy in that uh, compared to this. But I did like Kurt Russell and I did like Halle Berry. Yes, I think they're both uh, a lot of fun and interesting to watch. I'm going to go through my notes. Uh, there is a lot of text put on the screen telling us, like, where we are, what's happening, and there's a sound effect that's used. That's bad. That's really annoying. Um, you know what I was thinking? This is 1996, so obviously before 9-11 and before airports had more restrictions, but it's amazing to think that these terrorists got all these weapons on board <clears throat> and all this nerve gas on board. Right. But then when I boarded my flight to come to Minneapolis, they took my eczema cream. Yep. And I was so upset because it's expensive. And I was and, so mad coming back from Germany once. They took my Nutella. Well, I understand there are rules. I'm not trying to argue about the rules, but it's just so funny to be like, wow. These <laughs> they people, got all this shit on this plane. I the, can't have my eczema cream. These people were just raw-dogging everywhere here. <laughs> okay, I can't stand Oliver Platt. I know. You. And Oliver Platt plays like... He, I think he designed the craft. Uh, yeah, I, I think he designed the special aircraft that can connect to the the, uh, the commercial jetliner. I can't stand him in anything. He just doesn't look like the person that would have the fortitude to do that. But. He's in that movie with Julia Roberts and where they're like doctors who are playing with death. Oh, Flatliners. He's in Flat... Oh, God, I just hate him. He's and in he Working lo- Girl. He looks like the perfect combination of Elvis Presley, Meatloaf, Porky Pig, oh and Anna de Armas. God. He does. And some... if you look at him long enough, he really does look like Anna de Armas, or she looks like him. <laughs> She's a spokesmodel for some Estee Lauder fragrance I saw at the mall recently. And yeah, I think she looks just like Oliver Platt. 
<laughs> oh, niece. and he has this awful hairdo that's very Elvis. Yeah, with, that, and I was very wet. With the pork chop sideburns and that floppy black ass hair. Oh, I hated him. And then speaking of hair, B.D. Wong, his haircut is... I don't know why we don't talk about it in the same conversation as Courtney Cox and Scream, whatever. <laughs> because, well, I, like I will from now on. Okay, uh, yeah, I mean, he's not as notable as Courtney Cox, which is probably why. But... He has this like crew cut, like military crew cut, except that they buzz... Like his head is shaped like an oval, so they buzz it to... Oh my God. Like, you just have to Google it. B.D. Wong, executive decision. They're trying to make him into a jarhead. Oh, and, it, and just, it doesn't work. It's so bad. And then the, the way he's lit, a lot of times it's like all you see is the top of his head, but then these two chunks of. It reminded me of in Wisconsin at the. Uh, is it the Green Bay Packer games where they have the cheese heads? Oh, yeah. He looked like a cheese head. Okay, you already mentioned this, but. Steven Seagal in this movie, his death is so unexpected. Yes. Because he was a big star in 96. Yeah. So you would expect him to be like, you wouldn't expect him to be dispatched within the first act of the film, but he gets like sucked out of the connector from the air, the, the secret aircraft and the commercial jetliner. I was shocked. He looks, I think, terrible even at this point. And, uh, People hated working with him. John Leguizamo was very open about... Oh, God. You can tell just looking at him. Like, just him sitting there not saying anything that he seems difficult. And, oh, I just couldn't stand looking at his ass. Uh, yes, yeah, so it's very nice to see him get blasted out into space. Joe Morton's character, who's in a lot of stuff... Yeah. Um, Skynet. His character falls. Mm-hmm. And then there, I, I guess there's a doctor who's part of the commando mission or a medic. And he's like, oh, yeah, he's like fractured his vertebrae. <laughs> like, like, how do what? you know that? They're like, we, we got to stabilize him. So then they like, you know, lay him flat and put tape around his head and shit. Put him in traction. But I thought that was funny because his character is the expert on like. Diffusing this bomb. Diffusing the bomb. So he's laid up. So he's laid up with Oliver Platt's dumbass trying to... Oh, I couldn't stand him. He's sweating and shaking. Ugh. Anyway, they are able... Probably one of the more popular scenes in the film, I would assume, is how they deactivate the bomb. Mm -hmm. Because it's Oliver Platt for 30 minutes trying to put like a straw in between the two connectors. Yeah. And then at the final moment when the bomb's about to go off, he shoves it in and it works. Oh, couldn't stand him. Couldn't stand him. <sighs> um, there's a moment when when the commando team gets on the plane, there's some like alarm going off in the cockpit saying that there's like something wrong. And the terrorists are really worried about it. And they make one of the pilots go down to the hole mm -hmm. to check it out. And I thought the main terrorist, that guy was written so strangely because he seems really chill he doesn't seem to worry about obvious things. Right. Like like suspicious behavior from Halle Berry, let's say. But then other things where it's like, why would you be worried about this? He seems like when the pilot goes down into the hole. He's acting like he has a plan to do something down there. But you're the one who forced him to go down there. Right. And then you're suspicious, but then you don't actually check. Yeah, you don't because actually Because if you would down. have checked, you would have seen that there's an entire commando unit down right. there. I, I didn't think that was very well done. Halle Berry's character, I know 
that flight attendant did not get paid enough to be so aggressive with the terrorists. Right. She's so inquisitive and she's like taking well, all these chances. Well, she, she hides the manifest. <laughs> yeah. So that they can't see who the um, air marshal is on board. Listen, I would have sat my ass down, stayed quiet, hope we land safely so I could get a check from this traumatic experience. Hope we land safely. <laughs> well. Uh, and then she's sitting next to Marla Maples who has nothing to do. She has no lies. Except look scared. Yep. <laughs> what she's probably good at. Based she probably on her, just drew from her experience being at home with Donald Trump. Yeah, she just <laughs> got to do the same thing at work that day. Uh, it, it's funny because there were all these plane movies in the 90s after this, like Air Force One with Harrison Ford and then um, Turbulence. I feel like Lauren Holly is styled to be like Halle Berry. Halle Berry looks really good. Yes, with that short hair. Yeah. yeah. Um, getting back to Joe Morton and the bomb... So, it would appear Joel Morton, like, just dies from, like, discomfort. It was so weird. It's like, so you fractured your vertebra. You've been sitting still. Nothing's changed. You're, like, talking and alert. And then all of a sudden, he just, like, goes unconscious. Yep. In the middle of stupid Oliver Platt trying to... Cut a wire. Cut a wire. And then right as he's about to cut the wrong wire, Joel Morton wakes up. Don't do I that. thought that was horribly written. <laughs> Um, okay, so a big part of the movie is we have the Secretary of Defense and the other cabinet members like watching this all go down and they're trying to make a decision. Like, do we shoot this plane out of the air? An executive decision. An executive decision. And we do get that line of dialogue yeah. where the Secretary of Defense is like, I'm calling the president. This is an executive decision. <laughs> but the decision is like, do we let this plane land and hope that the bomb doesn't go off? Or do we shoot this shit down before it gets to the United States? And then they're like, we can't do that because we're all up for re-election. And if we kill 400 Americans, no one's going to vote for us. We need to try to land this plane. Mm -hmm. So the executive decision is we need to shoot this plane down if it, we can't divert it away from the U.S. So all these fighter jets are following the commercial jetliner. And... Kurt Russell and his buddy have the decision that we're going to do Morse code from the taillights of the plane. <laughs> so the one guy's doing the Morse code. Because, and Kurt Russell's like, well... Because the other guy says no one reads Morse code anymore. And Kurt Russell's like, pilots do. Mm -hmm. Like, Air Force pilots read Morse code. So he's doing it. And all the pilots are like, wait, wait, wait. That can't be what we think it is. And one of the pilots goes damn right it is that was the corniest moment of this film and then of course they read the morse code back to secretary of defense and he's like okay okay we'll give you 10 more minutes yeah to figure this shit out um one of the passengers on the plane looked just like fortune feimster that's a character <laughs> actress you've seen her in things she's diabetic and then she's sitting next to a guy who they suspect is one of the terrorists who has like <clears throat> because Joe Morton says this kind of bomb has like two switches. Yeah. Like a remote switch and then also like a human who can detonate it. And that person has to be on the plane. So they identify a man who they think it is with the help of Halle Berry. But it turns out that he's just transporting diamonds. <laughs> that poor guy looks so scared. And all um, those diamonds get sucked out. 
My final note is Kurt Russell, the scene of him trying to land the plane was calamitous. <laughs> he's he, making Callie read the manual to him. He's, yeah, and then he tries to land at Dulles in D.C., but mm-hmm. he's going too fast, so he has to take off and try to go to a different airport. I don't think they tell us which airport he ends up at. But then he lands the plane while Halle Berry's trying to read him the instructions. <laughs> And then when he does finally land, he tears up a bunch of small planes. Yeah. And then he eventually runs into that sand barrier. And that's what stops the plane. And we forgot to mention J.T. Walsh, who is a senator on board that gets killed. Oh, that character was stupid. He's yelling at his assistant, like, what did you get me into? I booked your flight. Like, motherfucker, I just booked your flight. How did I know there'd be terrorists on it? Uh, Notably, it was written by John and Jim Thomas, who previously wrote Predator. Are you familiar with the director? Stuart Baird. So this is his debut. He's better known as an editor. And he only did three movies, and they're all in the 90s. And they're all all notable films. Um, U.S. Marshals, which is a sequel to The Fugitive. Notably, the man who is the... Uh, and the the killer in The Fugitive that Harrison Ford is seeking is in this film. Did it? you know he was nominated for an Academy Award for editing? Uh, for which film? It's a movie that you know very well. It stars one of it stars Sigourney Weaver. Aliens? No, Gorillas in the Mist. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's the only fact that I remembered about him. Um, and then his last film was Star Trek Nemesis. But yeah, he did Gorillas in the Mist. Oh, he also did Superman. Christopher Reeve? Okay. He edited it. He edited it. And he yes. was nominated for that. And Skyfall. Um, yeah, I did enjoy Kurt Russell and Halle Berry in this. The other casting didn't work for me. I think the writing's a little basic. Um, in my mind's eye, they had so many more scenes together because my, you know, my mom loving Kurt Russell. We watched this several many times when I was a kid. And, you know, they actually don't have enough scenes together because their little romance at the end felt very like... Well, he has to buy her coffee. Yeah, but she's flirting with him, and then he's kind of like, okay. It, it felt very much like they didn't want this interracial... <laughs> I don't know. It just felt very odd. Like, they, they really don't have any scenes together. And then his character's acting very much like... It's true. I'm sorry. If Hall- Halle Berry's the kind of lady that if you find her attractive, you either do or you don't. I don't know how you wouldn't if you're a straight man, but you could not find her attractive. But if you do... She's not the kind of lady that you would kind of be like, okay, Casual I get, about it. Yeah, yeah, like, I, I guess I'll take you for coffee. Yeah, like, no, girl, get get, get out of my dreams and into my car, girl. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's funny now that you say that. A lot of those films with black and white leads of opposite genders, because we certainly didn't have anything queer uh, so prominent, like Pelican Brief, you know, that's back when Denzel was refusing to kiss white women on screen. Uh, and uh, what's the other? Oh, Long Kiss Goodnight. You know, with Sam Jackson and Gina Davis. It's like oh, they, sure. they completely scrub the possibility of there being a sexual tension between the leads. Um, so, yeah, it's funny that they, they... I think that's on purpose. They tried to avoid. Uh, what's notable about Hallie's casting is this was her first million-dollar paycheck because she, oh. she turned it down, apparently, and then they offered her more money, and she took it. Well, good for her. Yeah. That's executive decision. I don't know what we're watching next week. Uh, we have a couple of reviews coming out. Yes, and a couple. Th- we're seeing a double feature on Tuesday. Well, next week we have May December, that Julianne Moore movie I really liked. Mm-hmm. It's like a Mary Kay Letourneau type story. Todd Haynes directed, yeah. And then The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Jimmy Buffett. Or Rod- <laughs> Isn't there something called The Ballad of something? The Ballad of Clapton and Buffett. Um yeah, yeah the, the new Hunger Games movie review comes out next week as well. 
And then, and then I, but what are we watching next week? Uh, Napoleon, Saltburn, oh, Silent Night. Ugh. Uh, maybe I don't think you're seeing that though. And then uh, Thanksgiving. I only have one movie on my calendar, and you just named four movies. It's you, Saltburn and Napoleon are together at the same venue. Oh, okay. Well, that's good to know. Anyway, yep, that's it. Do you have anything else you want to say? No. Ta ta. <laughs>